Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week has been described as a guerrilla artist, which is sort of funny because uh, just not long ago, I was having this conversation with someone and saying the first time I heard the word guerrilla in terms of guerrilla soldiers, I was a little kid and I was under the impression that the warring parties were actually using guerrillas, the apes, as soldiers in their armies. And I couldn't figure out why they were doing that. Later, of course, I learned that gorilla is not spelled the same as gorilla. David Emminghaus is here with us today, gorilla artist working in multimedia. You might know him by another name, and we'll get to that. David Ebbinghaus, welcome to Big Talk. Thank you, Michael. I got to say something right away about gorilla. There, there was um, a couple of women, maybe there were two or three in New York City that dress in gorilla masks, and they were called gorilla girls, and they were very <laughs> upset about the lack of women being championed in the art world. So the gorilla girls were kind of known, I think, in the 80s, maybe in the 70s, you know, as part of like, you know, a political. Um, anyway, it, it's interesting that you mentioned gorilla art because somebody else already took that ambiguity and yeah. ran with it. In this case, they were feminist artists. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, now, we know what guerrilla soldiers are. What's a guerrilla artist? I guess as it applies to me, uh, I would have to say it means that I didn't, I'm not obedient to history. I'm not trying to go to New York and be a big deal artist and be canonized and put in the art history. I'm kind of like the, what they used to call the refuseniks, you know, the Russian poets and authors who wouldn't play ball with the state. So in that way, I kind of, because of the uh, interesting demographics of being uh, born uh, a baby boomer and then coming of age in the early 70s when there were a zillion artists, uh, you know, there's so many MFAs who are well-educated, um, well-informed, talented, and all converging on Soho in New York City and wanting to have a career. And I just took a look at those odds and went, you know, this is not a good idea. And, and I didn't really want to live in New York. So I thought, well, I can still be living in Indiana. I mean, there's, there's no reason why there has to be a brain drain and all the most talented people like in jazz or in avant-garde art end up in New York. Then what happens to the poor people in Indiana? So I like Indiana. I, I grew up here. I'm very at home here. I wanted to be an Indiana avant-garde, which is an oxymoron. You know, that's impossible. So what I'm trying to do is really impossible. And that is make the highest quality art, um, cutting edge art, but, you know, out here in the boonies and out here in the cornfields instead of in the uh, concrete canyons in New York City. So in that sense, I guess I'm I'm working, you know, like in the like they used to say about the Viet Cong, you know, if you're a general in the Viet Cong, you still have to carry the bag of rice. You just to be you just get to be the guy in the front of the line. Right. So that's kind of my position here in Bloomington. Now, David, you mentioned that you were raised here in Indiana, but I had seen something that indicated that you were born in the state of Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. My dad was in the Army. He was a doctor. And uh, at, towards the end of World War II, he was stationed at St. Joseph's Hospital. So I got to be born in Memphis, Tennessee. Then as soon as he finished his residency and, and the war was over, he moved to Indiana. He took over a practice in Richmond, Indiana. So uh -huh. I grew up in Richmond, graduated Richmond Senior High School, then came down here to IU, and I just never left. I just thought this was the greatest place. It was so cosmopolitan. Uh, I kept thinking, like, well, 
I'll go somewhere where I have a better chance with my career. But first, I want to check out Professor Norbu. And, you know, I want to find out what this Tibetan Buddhism stuff's all about. And, oh, I want to find out what Dr. Kenneth Yasuda is doing with this uh, Japanese gardening. And, you know, I kept discovering, like, all these resources here in Bloomington. And I just, I mean, I left. I went to India. I went to Mongolia. I went to China. I went to various places. But um, I always came back here, and I thought, this is a great place to, to bring up a family. I have two sons that have grown up here. So I love Bloomington. I, I wouldn't live anywhere else. Well, Bloomington apparently is where you had your first public exhibition of art. And uh, that was in about 1977 at the Monroe County Public Library. You had an exhibition of your oh, art. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what did you put up? As far as what I put up on the walls, I was doing various photo booth pieces and Xeroxing them, doing collages. Um, I'd go out, part of my idea was that, like, if you want to go with this guerrilla artist idea, that you use whatever's available. And at that time, we were trying to live under the radar on very little money, ride bicycles, grow your own food. You know, that was kind of in the 70s. So if I wanted to take a picture, I went out to the mall and used the photo booth. And this wasn't anything particularly profound. I mean, I saw on the cover of Time Magazine, Andy Warhol had done a piece. They wanted him to do something on the youth quake. So he just went and took pictures of people that he grabbed off the street and put them in the photo booth. So I already have this, uh, you know, I, I really liked Andy Warhol. He kind of provided a way forward, a different idea of how to be an artist. So like you go out to the mall and you, you know, just put a, some quarters in that machine. And uh, later I got, in 1975, I actually bought a Polaroid camera. So then I didn't need to use the photo booth. But the real thing that I did in that 1977 group of work was I did these performances in the auditorium. And this was performance art where I utilized video and film and neon. I, I Xerox, I used some of my Xerox self-portraits. So that work was um, really, to me, more important than what I was putting on the wall. It's, it's kind of like when Andy Warhol said, I, you know, they knew him for his soup cans and they said, oh, now you're a painter. He said, okay, I quit painting. I'm going to be a filmmaker. Of course, he didn't really quit painting, but his right. idea was that, that art isn't just putting paintings on the wall. It's yeah. actually creating cultural experiences. So I got that right away. So this work in 1977 that nobody really you know, picked up on, this was all kind of uh, very tinged with the downtown New York art scene. You know, when all those artists had Port-A-Pack video, reel-to-reel, I mean, my, my iPhone now does 10 times more, 100 times <laughs> more than what we had then. Now, I noticed that you have worked in sculpture, drawings, paintings, graffiti, installation, as you mentioned, performance art, situation art, silkscreen, apparel, jewelry. Uh, you're all over the map. Is there anything you won't do? Well, once again, this is kind of like what Andy Warhol was showing us back in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s. He, he showed, you know, he, he had uh, Interview Magazine, you know, he had the uh, TV show, you know, he was involved in fashion, he was involved in filmmaking, painting, he had the Velvet Underground, the um, Plastic Exploding Inevitable light show and, you know, all this stuff. So this, I just grew up with all this. So the idea wasn't that I'm a painter or that I'm a graphic artist, or I'm a clothing designer. I do trash and refashion every year, so you could say I'm a fashion designer. But my idea is that 
you're a creative person and you use whatever's around you or whatever seems interesting or whatever conveys some kind of energy. And then you, you know, you build the art out of that. The labels come later. And that's why there's so many different labels is because in our society, we have this idea that uh, everything's specialized. So if you're really good at something like you're a composer, so all you do is sit at home and write notes on paper. You're a composer. That's your specialty. That's what you do 24-7. That makes you great. I have a completely different idea about how to be an artist. My idea is that you're a creative person. You respond to your environment. You want to create some kind of energy to your audience or to your friends or even to yourself. And you do that. And then later somebody goes, oh, well, that's not painting. That's what, what is this? Oh, well, that must be installation art because you, gra you grabbed a bunch of stuff and put it in the gallery. You know, so really, I guess what you'd say, if you want a real blanket term for what I am, collagist is probably the best. Collagist. I, yeah. I take stuff and I put it together and you can get meanings from that, but it doesn't have like an overdetermined meaning. It has all these ambiguous possibilities and associations that you can travel out on. Your hope is to broaden our, as the viewers of art, our definition of what art is. Now, you also talk about the sociological value of your art. Now, what does that mean? This has to do with me living in Bloomington and being part of a community. Because what I realized when I was trying to do art in the 70s was my community was just a handful of other artists. That's who I was really speaking to. That's who was really looking at what I was doing and getting the message. But I really wanted it to be you know, a broader community. So like when I did the Tomcat spray thing, Part of this was it's interacting directly with the community. It's putting messages out there. Other people who are doing graffiti then deface what I do or add to it. Then I go back and repair it. You know, it's kind of like a, a dialogue. It's a conversation. I'm not the only artist in town who's doing this. Joe Lamantia, who I really admire, he, he does these various projects. But really what he's making are social sculptures. He activates a certain audience and he gets people to cooperate with him. He gets collaborators. And then he works with all these things and makes these various things. And then, you know, we get these artworks, which we think are the product. In my mind, it's this building of the sociology that he does. He, yeah. he, he can't work in a vacuum. And all of, his, all of his pieces that he does, you know, they dovetail in, in our local community in various ways. And maybe I should get back to what, you know, what's coming up because... I'm, I'm having the show in the Brick Room Gallery April 1st, and it's, it's uh, based on the graffiti work, the Tomcat spray, and we're going to, they're paintings. Basically, I made paintings, and I'll, I'll tell you the process, how that happened. But these are going to be kind of auctioned. You know, people are going to make bids, like a silent auction, and then whatever money we take in for the paintings, it's going to go to the Middle Way House. Uh -huh. So once again, this is a local community charity. You know, this is local history. Tomcat spray is local history. It's not Banksy, who everybody knows about, see, right? The Bloomington's Banksy. You know, it's got a very definite purpose in, in how we're doing this. And how this came about was um, I did this project with Joe Lamantia called What is Democracy, where he set up all these boards around campus for people to write on with Sharpies what they thought democracy meant. And then he also, he got a grant to do this. So he had some money and he approached me and some other graffiti artists to do eight foot by eight foot panels so I did this painting. I, I went way over my budget. I mean, this was an opportunity for me to do my art. So I don't care what I'm getting paid. And, you know, it's going to end up somewhere. So it went, he exhibited it and it went through various venues and it ended up being in storage. So I, 
I asked him what he, what's going to happen to it. So he got Sherry Rouse, who was the campus curator, involved, and she placed it in Valentine Hall. So this, for me, was like um, impossible, an impossible dream. You know, to have a put a piece, one of my works, a painting on permanent display on, on my alma mater campus, Indiana University. I could never have done this without other people, without this community, you know, Sherry and, and Joe. So what happened in 2019 was Lenny's was going to move. The IU Foundation, I think, owns those buildings, and they were going to razz them. And so Sherry called me up and said they, they wanted to do some kind of a show there for people who had shown in the restaurant. And I said, well, I never had a show there. She said, yeah, I know, but you could graffiti the bar. So I went, all right, because I had all the, I saved all my stencils from the 80s. So I went in there every night for a month at midnight, and um, Mike Fox, the manager, gave me a key. Now, I didn't realize that Jeff Meese, the owner, didn't even know that this was going on. He came in and discovered <laughs> this, which is, it's perfect. That's just how the graffiti thing works. So I worked in there for a month, about three hours every night after closing. And I just figured they'd tear down the building and that'd be it. You know, this was me doing my graffiti again. But everyone kept saying, oh, it'll be terrible if this is lost. We have to save it. And I said, well, unless you could peel off the walls. And then we discovered it. It really was on this heavy canvas backing. And oh. you really could peel it off. So we peeled off all the walls. And then COVID hit. So then nothing's happening. So I'm talking to Jeff. And he's got this One World Enterprises where the, they have kitchens for the food trucks. And you know, Pizza X works out of there. And that's just about 10 minutes from my house. So there was an extra room upstairs there and we rolled up all the wallpaper and put it up there. Then like in early December, I had a, a space in my calendar where I figured, I, oh, I can work nonstop on this. So I made uh, three dozen panels and I glued all the wallpaper back on the panels. And then I, I made them as paintings because one wall was really done. All I had to do is cut it up into fifths and mount that. And that was like a, a ready-made mural. But then other parts of it, I wanted to do more layers to it. So it's very different from doing graffiti in the streets and, and making paintings. So when we call this graffiti art, it's not really graffiti art in the traditional sense. It, it comes out of graffiti. It's the same imagery and I'm using the same stencils, but I'm actually making paintings. So yeah. I worked a month and a half on making these paintings and they came out really great. I was just, I was so thrilled that I could be, you know, here's my dream come true again. From nine to five for a month and a half, I go and, and paint and, you know, build, build panels. Take, take them to my studio and build the panels, take those over to One World, glue them, take them back to my studios and add layers and layers of graffiti imagery on it. So then we had all these paintings. So we wanted to have a show. So I thought the best thing to do with this community, since I, I could never, I could not even take credit for being Tomcat Spray at first until seven years ran out, then the cat could leak out of the bag. <laughs> so you can't sell graffiti art. I mean, once you take it out of context, it's not graffiti art anymore. It's right. a fragment, you know, it's an artifact, it's something. So then I got to have all these paintings that I thought, well, since I, I could never sell graffiti art anyway, and I know there's no, there's not really a great market for this, for paintings, even in New York City, you know. So I thought, well, I'll just eliminate the idea of me profiting from the show and we'll just leave it open to the community if people have favorites. You know, if you were a punk rock, uh, skateboarder back in the 80s and now you have your own company and you're successful now you can buy one of these things that you know was important to you when you were growing up so that's really what i'm looking for and the timing seems to be about right i mean i'm old but those people are now in their you know they're mature now they're earning 
they can afford to buy art. So, so I'm out of the equation as far as money. So now I can be totally ruthless about how much money we sell them for because <laughs> I'm not profiting personally. Tomcat Spray, it was an alias for, as you say, for about the first seven years, people didn't know who Tomcat Spray was. Yeah, for some people, even longer. And the way the cat got let out of the, out of the bag was I realized a, a few people I had to let in on it, you know, for various reasons. Like one group of copycats ambushed me in the alley. They just waited until they heard Katinka, 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 and then they knew I'm out there shaking up the spray cans. They joined my crew basically and helped me for a while, for a little while. What happened then was that I had to tell a few people. So what I would do, I'd say, oh, okay, I'm going to let you in on this. But don't tell anybody, okay? If I tell you, you've got to promise not to tell. Because they'd say, like, are you Tomcat Spray? And I'd say, well, if I were, I couldn't admit it now, could I? <laughs> Which is you know, another way of saying, you know, if you say, if you refuse to say something, it's another way of saying. So then they would like, oh, okay, so now we know it's you. And I'd say, look, don't tell anybody. So that way I knew that they'd tell somebody. If you right. tell them not to tell somebody, <laughs> they're going to tell somebody. But they won't tell everybody. They'll tell, like, somebody who's their best friend you know, a significant person. So yes. then that would kind of direct the gossip, you know, into the right channels. So that's another way of using sociology. Now, I saw a little anecdote that said that you used to sit in the runcible spoon and eavesdrop on people's conversations to hear them talking about the Tomcat spray work. Well, I didn't do that too often, but there were a few times that I would be out the night before and I was up all night prowling around. So, you know, they had a pretty good breakfast at the Runcible Spoon. So it just seemed very convenient since I'm already down there to just go, you know, around the block and around the corner and have breakfast. So then just by chance, I heard people say, oh, did you see? Oh, there's more <laughs> stuff out there, you know, behind uh, Blooming Foods. You know, there's, there's more stuff over there, you know, behind Spaceport. And so then that was very, that was fun. That was a thrill for me to hear other people talking about it. And then I realized, of course, that, you know, it was actually happening because it tends to feel like you're working in a vacuum. You know, for me in the 70s, doing my for going out to the quarries and getting the, a Channel 3 camera set and taking it out there and doing video art and then bringing it back. And then maybe like two or three people will see it on Channel 3. You know, it just feels like you're like in a very big, empty room and you're getting echoes back of what you said. So to hear people talking about it in Runcible Spoon, then it's like, oh, yeah, they're actually paying attention to this. And, you know, that's, of course, that's what an artist wants. They want to get this feedback and like, oh yeah, you're hitting the mark or, oh no, you're, you know, you're a little bit off, a little bit higher into the left. So that was cool. Our guest this week, David Ebbinghaus, a guerrilla artist working in multimedia, also known to the people in the know as Tomcat Spray, say uh, about, oh, looks like 12 years ago or so, you had an exhibit in South Bend featuring sculptures made of, and here's, here's the list of stuff, uh, probably not an inclusive list, but chocolate bar and granola wrappers, plastic inner bags from boxes of cereal, aluminum pop tops, bamboo skewers, used incense sticks. You made sculptures of that stuff. Why? My son is sitting eating a granola bar, and I'm looking at this thing, and it's made out of mylar, and that was developed for the Echo satellite. You know, this is literally a space-age material, and yeah. it's got, like, all these fluorescent colors on it 
that, you know, like if I were in New Guinea, I would like put this in my address, you know, and I'm thinking we pay all this money to designers and to industry to create this packaging. And then he's just tearing it off the granola bar and throwing it away. And I'm thinking, you know, this is like something important. This, I mean, waste management is a big problem for our consumer society. So if I use, if I use materials that are deplorable or, you know, not considered to be worthy of anything, then that's going to bring up all those issues. So then the idea from that then is like, what are the inherent physical characteristics of these materials that you can use? So what I discovered was if I fold those granola bar wrappers, um, you know, into fourths and then like get a hot nail, like put an old nail on the stove and heat it up and then melt holes, they're self-sealing and then use incense sticks or popsicle sticks in a grid structure and weave them together. I can make what's basically looks like a modular grid oriented kind of post minimalist New York kind of sculpture, but it's made out of trash. I, I was using pop tops. You know, this led me to use pop tops in my um, trash and refashion designs. Because once I started collecting pop tops, and if you get enough of anything, you know, if you get several thousand of something, then you can really do a lot, a lot of interesting things with it, you know, using a modular approach. It occurs to me that people of this uh, young generation today have no idea what a pop top is. Really? Yeah, I would think so. Wow. You know, it's, <laughs> It's, you know, it's this aluminum thing here, you know, that you pull up on the top of the can to, you know, pop the top open so you can drink. In our day, David, pop tops actually were removed from the can and you oh, yeah. can make a necklace out of them. Yes, yes. And uh, we don't have that anymore. Yeah, those were the dangerous ones that had the tail on them. Yes. And, you know, th those are the kind of things where you're running on the beach. You got to be careful. That's all slight yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, speaking of running, like here, here again is how I integrate my practice. So every morning I go out running and I run through Lower Cascades Park. So there are all these beer cans that are thrown out on the side of the road. So I pick those up and smash them and put them in my pocket and I strip the pop tops off of those. Oh. And then I turn them, you know, I, I turn them when I was a boy scout, before COVID, I was a boy scout leader. And so I would take those, I'd take the cans and turn them in, into money you know, at the salvage company. Then I'd take that money and go to Joanne Fabrics and buy the fabric at half off. And then we'd make the neckerchiefs for our troop. So then the boys were bringing in pop tops. They bring in the cans and I'd bring in the cans. So anyway, this is how like all these things kind of fit together in my life. Yeah. You know, to where whatever I'm doing in some way, I'm working on something. You also mentioned trash and you have done designs for trash and refashion. In fact, you wrote a 2014 Writer Magazine article, and it was titled, How I Found Myself Designing Couture Clothes from Materials Found in Dumpsters. You're still doing that, designing for trash and refashion, which, by the way, is April 10th this year. Yeah, well, I, I got asked by a friend, uh, Gail Hale, about 10 years ago, said, we're doing this trash and refashion and you ought to design something for it. It was kind of like that brain extravaganza where I thought, oh, well, I'm not really that interested in doing somebody else's project. I make up my own projects, you know, but then she said, well, you're already doing it. You know, you, you already get clothes out of the dumpster and alter them. That's what we're doing here. I went, well, yeah, I'm already doing it. So I guess we'll do that. So that's when my nephew had a girlfriend, a tall blonde girlfriend in the fine arts department. So we enlisted her to be one of the models. 
And then another young lady that was in my meditation group, she was game. So, um, you know, we, we, we did the first show and uh, I, I just kind of used what I already had around. I didn't really do that much work, you know, new work for the show, but everybody loved it. And so I thought, well, maybe I should be open to this. You know, this was the idea, the rentable spoon feedback idea again of like, oh, well, if they're really paying attention to this, then I'm going to run with it. So now what I do is um, I go to thrift stores every winter. I have certain thrift stores that I go and mine. And I've got people that give me things like parachutes. I had two different ladies gave, gave me nylon parachutes that I writ dyed and made big ball gown kind of skirts out of. So I'm, I kind of have this routine now. I'm, I'm like, a, a, I'm always a couple of years ahead. Like, I really hate it. Like when you're a month before the deadline and you go, oh, I got to do something. You know, like that kind of a forced situation that doesn't work for me. What yeah. I do is I follow the energy and then I have this backlog of stuff laying around. And then I've got my models who want to walk for me, who know me and who know my work or who, you know, got excited by what I did last year. And so then I let them try stuff on. Then if they like light up like a light bulb when they try it on, then that's what I'm looking for. So that's kind of, or, or maybe I say, okay, I'm going to do, like last year, I, I did these vaccination tags. So Mary Hunter that was at the south of town at the Recycle Resources there gave me all these leftover veterinarian vaccination tags. Oh. So I had a red heart, I had a blue shape and a, a green clover shape. So I had enough of them that I could drill a bunch of holes in them and link them all together. So all three of my models were wearing these kind of 60s uh, A-line mini dresses kind of like Paco Rabanne palettes all linked together. They were all like very, it's like a, a collection. So I went from just doing single designs to doing like two or more like variations on a collection. So, you know, I really, I get to have a lot of fun with this because instead of just going, oh, I got to do something in a month, you know, and who knows if I'll get it done in time. You know, that's not me. I, I don't roll that way. So I have this whole backlog of stuff. I, I've got a whole closet full of things that the girls can try on and I've got things, I've got ideas for next year. I've got some ideas for the year after. There's no disputing David Ebbinghouse is a world champion talker. We love talkers on this program. That's what we do here. That's why we call it Big Talk. David and I spoke so long, we're able to turn this conversation into a two-parter. Tune in next week Thursday, 5.30 p.m., here on WFHB, for part two of our chat with guerrilla artist David Ebbinghouse. And remember, next week begins our 2022 Spring Fun Drive. It's easy and secure to donate at WFHB.org. Help us keep the conversation, the music, the news, and all the great programming coming to you every day, 24 hours a day.